Hello and welcome to another episode of Casting Views, a podcast about really anything and everything and we'll just cast some views. I'm Lou. I'm Dan. And we're here for another episode. Um, Are you all right, Dan? How are you doing? How's your week been? Week's been okay. I've still got a little bit of this cold we were talking about last week and basically what's happened now is it's kind of gone into my left ear so I'm a bit hard hearing so when you talk if you're talking to the left side of your microphone more than your right place <laughs> that's how it works right yeah otherwise um yeah not too bad sort of chilling trying to relax yeah I recently got over my cold as well I thought I had covid for a bit and then realized in reality there's absolutely no way to test for it anymore so I was like well I'm just gonna have to deal with it and uh accept it recently turned 26 and two six months old Oh, yeah, I forgot to say that. Yeah, yeah happy birthday, yeah. obviously, yeah, for that. Yeah. Um, anniversary and a birthday. Yeah, God, imagine. For anybody wondering as why, why, it's because I've got a little bit of a fear of what's that number that comes after 26? 27. That's the one. I won't say it. Um, <laughs> uh, the 27 Club. Yeah, I just thought to myself, because so many talented and good-looking people die when they're 27, <laughs> I thought I might be at additional risk. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, 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 I didn't, yeah. I, yeah, I didn't want to curse myself. So I'm turning 28. Um, next year and we're just going to skip this year over I think <laughs> oh and I do want to say for people when I said oh yeah about Lou's birthday I did actually wish him a happy birthday on the day I'm just saying <laughs> in, in, in context of the podcast I forgot to mention it that's all so, yeah. so I'm not a terrible uncle no <laughs> do you want to give a little teaser on what the episode is before we do a bit of a promo no do you know what? let's go into the let's go into the promos yeah uh, let's hear from some friends and then I'll let you do the honors because I think this is one when I suggested I knew I had you in mind I think you're <laughs> gonna you're gonna enjoy talking about yeah, this aren't you I think so yeah yeah all right let's hear from some friends now welcome to Shatsunami a variety podcast that discusses topics from gaming and films to anime and general interests previously on Chatsunami, we've analyzed what makes a good horror game conducted a retrospective on Pierce Brosnan's runs James Bond and listened to us take deep dives into both the Sonic and Halo franchises. Also, if you're an anime fan, then don't forget to check us out on our sub-series, Chatsunani, where we dive into the world of anime. So far, we've reviewed things like Death Note, Princess Mononoke, and the hit Beyblade series. If that sounds like your cup of tea, then you can check us out on Spotify, iTunes, and all good podcast apps. As always, stay safe, stay awesome, and most importantly, stay hydrated. It's me, Josh Scar from Talking Smack, and you're listening to Casting Views with Dan and Lou. And we're back. So this week's episode is all about psychological experiments. Most of them I would imagine that we're going to talk about are probably from 50 years ago, isn't they? (laughs) Do you know what? I I was saying to my partner yesterday, I said to her, it's amazing how all of these, the ones I've got are from the 20s to the 50s. So almost, well, over 100 years old. And and I think I've got a reason. Oh, I've got a hypothesis, which I'll put to you after we've discussed a couple. Okay, okay. Now, this was a particularly exciting episode for me because I really enjoyed psychology. Won't mention their name, but my psychology teacher, I'll shout out because I really enjoyed psychology when I was at school. And I've got a couple of like the big ones that I, I imagine most people would have heard of. And then we'll go into a little bit more detail about variations, that sort of thing. Um, Do you want to kick this off? Do you want me to kick this off? Happy either way, as a little teaser, because we've been discussing, we might actually end up splitting this into two episodes, because I yeah. think this deserves, it deserves proper conversation, I think. Yeah, now, depending on how we waffle on, because we love to yeah. do that, <laughs> um, yeah, we might end up making this a two-parter. Just going to say a little caveat on one of mine, it's actually been described as, or considered as one of the most unethical psychological experiments of all time, so I don't know, do we want to put this in part one? I think we should possibly put it in part one or do we leave it as a teaser for part two yeah yeah i don't know if we yeah maybe we should make people hang on to the second episode but then they might just skip straight to the second one (laughs) yeah well we'll keep you we'll keep you guessing but yeah i I saw again i'm trying to shed my always the the happy jolly one but yeah no when i when i read this and then i saw it yeah it's it's supposedly considered one of the most unethical um so again and and i'm wondering on a couple of these i don't know if we should, we if we say there's a trigger for any anything or anyone, but we are going to talk about experiments. You know, I don't think there's anything violent, not in mine anyway. But it is it is discussing about the whole element is psychological experimenting on people's psyches, isn't it? So, 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's what it is. And do, do you know what it is? Is obviously we're going to talk about ones that are, are much older, where obviously rules of ethics and that sort of thing weren't as fully developed as they evidently are now. Because um, again, I know that for certainly two of mine, the person that organised these experiments would definitely be going to prison now <laughs> if they did it today. I've got three. I think two are slightly bigger in terms of description than the others. So it's up to you. I'm happy to go first. Yeah, go on. I'll let you kick off on this one. All right. I'm going to start with one. And and I've got mine from a site actually called simplypsychology.org. And the first one is called Robber's Cave Experiment. Have you heard of this? I don't think I have, you know. Yeah, no, I've tried to go for ones that I, I, I don't think I'd been aware of. This was conducted by, I'm not going to get this name right, Mazava and Carolyn Sheriff, conducted in 1954 at the University of Oklahoma. Okay. The overall details are it was to study group conflict and it, again, is considered by most to be outside the lines of what was or is considered ethically sound. This isn't one I was talking about, though, beforehand, Dave. <laughs> so basically, in 1954, the University of Oklahoma decided to do this experiment into conflict. So they took 22, 11 and 12 year old boys. The boys in the study were unknown to each other. I think what is important is they were all from the similar background. So they were white middle class backgrounds, all shared a Protestant two parent background. So there was no disadvantage, no skew either way. Boys were divided into two groups by researchers with efforts to balance up the groups between physical, mental and social talents of the groups. But the two groups weren't aware of each other so that they thought they were the only group being picked for this this experiment or this trip. As individual groups, they were then picked up on a bus on successive days and transported to a 200-acre Boy Scouts of America camp in the Robbers Cave State Park in Oklahoma, um, hence the name. And they also had researchers doubling up as camp counsellors. The experiment itself was formed of three phases. So phase one was the in-group formation. This lasted around five to six days. So this is where each group got to know each other. The social norms developed. Leadership in each group was developed and a group structure emerged. At the camps, the groups were kept separate from each other and were encouraged to bond as the two groups, individual groups, through the pursuit of common goals that required cooperation, discussion, planning and execution. The boys developed an attachment to their groups throughout the first week of the camp, quickly establishing their own cultures and group norms by doing various activities like hiking, swimming, etc. And the boys chose their names for the group. So one group were called the Eagles, one were called the Rattlers, and they stenciled them under shirts and flags. So phase one, all nicey-nicey, get two groups of the boys, give them bonding exercises to get like a feeling of togetherness okay. and a group structure. Phase two is what in this experiment was called group conflict. And this was another four to five days. And here, Sheriff, who, who was one of the, the experimenters, now arranged a competition stage where friction between the groups was due to be introduced over the next four to six days. In this phase, it was intended to bring the two groups into competition with each other in conditions that would create frustration between them. So to do this, they introduced a series of competitive activities such as baseball, tug of war, etc. So it's a team events. And a trophy was awarded on the basis of accumulated team score. There were also individual prizes for winning the group, such as a medal and a multi-bladed pocket knife, which what a prize back then. You wouldn't even think about giving a pocket knife now to kids, would you? <laughs> yeah, there were individual prizes such as medals and pocket knives with no consolation prizes given to the losers. The Rattlers' reaction to the informal announcement of a series of contests was absolute confidence in their victory. They spent the day talking about the contest and making improvements on the ball field, which they took over as their own to such an extent that they spoke of putting a keep off sign there. They ended up putting their rattler flag on the pitch. And at this time, several rattlers made threatening remarks about what they would do if anybody from the Eagles touched a flag. So at the moment, this is just the fact that they've introduced this other group is causing this kind of conflict. This is where they then ramp up or turn up the heat a little bit. So situations were also devised where one group gained at the expense of the other. For example, one group was delayed getting to a picnic and when they arrived, the other group had already eaten all the food. Right. <laughs> At first, this prejudice was only verbally expressed, such as taunting or name calling. But as the competition wore on, this expression took a more direct route. So much so, the eagles burned the rattler's flag. <laughs> right, so we're starting to get violence coming up now. 
Then the next day, the Rattlers, in retaliation, ransacked the Eagles' cabin, overturned beds and stole property. The groups became so aggressive with each other that the researchers had to physically separate them. During the subsequent two-day cooling-off period, the boys listed features of the two groups. The boys tended to characterise their own in-group in very favourable terms and the other out-group in unfavourable terms. And this is what I was saying about the, the background being important. It, say, it says here, keep in mind that the participants in this studies were all well-adjusted boys. They weren't known for causing trouble or being violent or aggressive. This study clearly shows that conflict between groups can trigger prejudice attitudes and discriminatory behaviour. This experiment confirms Sheriff's realistic conflict theory. Now, the final part was they try to... Um, bring the groups back together again so conflict resolution for another six or seven days so after the above sheriff and their colleagues tried various means of reducing the animosity and low-level violence between the groups the robbers cave experiment showed that superordinate goals so that's goals that are so big that it needs more than one one of the groups involved to achieve the goal reduced conflict significantly and more effectively than other strategies a number of improvised reconciliatory opportunities, such as bean collecting contest or showing of a film or the shooting of firecrackers, did not lead to any appreciable less lessening tensions between the eagles and rattlers. So, again, that's quite interesting. So, just some fun events weren't enough. They needed to introduce a group event that could bring them together. Right, okay. Sheriff concluded that such contrived contact opportunities were not going to bring the groups together. So... What they then did is, learning the above, they arranged for the introduction of a number of scenarios presenting these superordinate goals, which could not easily be ignored by members of the two groups that at the time hated each other. The scenarios were played out at a new location in the belief that this would lessen the memories of the grievances that they had at the original camp. And I won't necessarily go into the details, but two, like two of the events they introduced to try bring them together was a drinking water problem. So what, what they've said is that the water supply had suddenly stopped flowing. All of the drinking water in the camp came from a re reservoir in the mountain north of the camp. So the two groups had to work together to work out why the water had stopped flowing and to then get the water back. So it then basically what the, the, the camp councillors had done was stuck um, some rags, I think it was, up, up in the water pipes. And the boys oh, then okay. had to get it, undo it, work on it, clear it and get the water back. And again, probably a sign of the time here, you know, being in the uh, the 50s, it said when the water finally came on, there was common rejoicing because it took them 45 minutes to, to eventually complete it. The Rattlers did not object to having the Eagles get ahead of them when they all got the drink, as the Eagles did not have canteens with them and were thirstier. No protests or ladies first type of remarks were made. So again, it just kind of shows that the boys were, were at each other earlier on and now have kind of let themselves become a bit more closer. And the second move, the second task they did was about the problem of securing a movie. So the next goal to be introduced was choosing a feature length film for them all to watch. Two films had been chosen. In the afternoon, the boys were called together and the staff suggested the possibility of watching either Treasure Island or Kidnapped. Both groups yelled approval of both films. After some discussion, one rattler said, Everyone that wants Treasure Island, raise their hands. The majority of members in both groups gave enthusiastic approval, even though a few dissensions were expressed to this film. But then, what's interesting, then the staff announced that securing the film would cost $15 and the camp couldn't pay the whole sum. So after much discussion, it was suggested that both groups would pay $3.50 and the camp would pay the balance. This was accepted even though a couple of homesick eagles had gone home and the contribution per group was unequal. Oh. At supper that night, there were no objections to eating together. Some scuffling and sticking chewing gum on each other occurred between members of the groups, but it involved fewer boys on both sides. And other problem-solving events were introduced. But ultimately, at the end, on the last day, all breakfast and lunch were mixed up and they even all went home on the same bus. So... Okay. So that's kind of the first one. There is some uh, criticism of it. I think what they're saying is that the simplest explanation for the conflict is competition. You assign strangers to a group, throw the groups into competition, stir the pot, and you're going to have conflict. And there is a lot of evidence when people compete for scarce resources that there is a rise in hostility between groups. 
Also, they're saying that the two groups of boys in the study were artificial as the competition did not necessarily reflect real life. Um, they said, for example, middle-class boys randomly assigned into two separate groups is not rival inner-city gangs or rival football supporters. <laughs> and, you know, ethical issues should be considered. So the participants were deceived as they did not know the true, true aim of the study and participants were not protected from physical and psychological harm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Basically, what this was trying to do is when individuals who don't know each other are brought together to interact in group activities, they will produce a group structure within hierarchical status. And when two in-groups are brought into a relationship under conditions of competition and frustration, hostile actions um, are going to result in hostility between the members. So I kind of find it a fascinating one because, you know, it... The criticism, I guess, is fair where you can say, right, you're bringing two groups of people together and forcing them to compete. But what I find fascinating is just even early on, the fact that when they were introduced, the boys already felt like the other group was a threat. Yeah, yeah. It's very like Lord of the Flies to me, the way that that kind of comes across. <laughs> yeah. That's like the way that I immediately thought about it. But I think that that's probably quite applicable because if we were to put it to like school, for instance... When you look at, like, you know, moving from, for instance, primary school to secondary school, the people that have known each other at their primary schools typically will stick together at their secondary schools and kind of create, like, groups and moulds that way. And so I kind of can see why you probably have a little bit of, like, a not an animosity as such, but, like, an apprehension about what you perceive to be outsiders. So I think that it's probably quite applicable to a fair few things in society. Because, like you mentioned, with, like, rival football fans for instance like it's very tribal you don't know who people are yeah. but it's the it's the coercion that you've built with a group already that makes you realize that other group is just hostile to us because they're a threat and so maybe it's as well kind of the unwillingness to treat another group as an equal because then that comes as a threat to your own kind of like survival i guess if you were to look at it in like an evolutionary way yeah that, that's a fair point because with football uh, well i guess you can say potentially any sport where there's some conflict between fans, because I know not all sport does. <laughs> Football, you've got, let's make it easy, 20,000 supporters on each side. You don't even, you've got no chance of knowing who the other supporters are, but a lot of people just know that they are supposed to hate yeah. those other supporters. And I, I use the word intentionally hate because we, I think it's actually got worse since COVID and social media because I think the taunting of rival teams has got worse because of things like TikTok and, and Facebook, like troll accounts. And it's like, why have I got to hate those people? The thing is, that could be someone I could go into work the next day and, and one of those could actually be like a new colleague and I'll be mates <laughs> with them in work, but I'm going to hate them in the context of the football match. What do you think though about the fact that they, you know, the elements of like making one group miss their dinner to try and ratchet up the tension? What, from like an ethics perspective? Yeah. Do you know what it is? Is when it comes to psychological experiments, whilst again, ethically nowadays, you're never going to get away with something like this. Sometimes I think that in order to get the best level of result and accurate result, sometimes you need to be unethical. And I think that when you look at like historically, some of the most unethical psychological experiments we've ever seen, some of which we're going to talk about and one of which we have, have provided us the most interesting conclusions on human behaviour. And I feel like that's because you're creating a situation where life is unethical sometimes. People are unethical. So in order to predict human behaviour, we need to create the circumstances that are going to allow human behaviour to thrive in the way it would in the real world. And you can only do that by having unethical elements to your research. In my personal opinion, obviously, you're not going to get a psychologist that says that now who's doing research at a university. Yeah, maybe we should have said that at the start again. Just like we're not <laughs> crypto experts. We're not psychologists. Yeah, we're not psychologists. Just got, just got a fascination in some of this, haven't we? Um, one of the criticism, actually, I should say, and, and it feeds into what you've kind of said there as well, though, is, um, and this was an important one I should have read, is that, can these results be generalised? Because, for example, there are all 11, 12-year-old white middle-class boys. There weren't yeah. any girls or adults. Now, I kind of, when I was reading this, I had Big Brother in my head, the, the game show, not the book, because it is it is almost like that. Or even like, um, for, for even a bit of a sillier comparison, you know, like the, the British version of The Apprentice? Yeah. Because as soon as it starts, they generally split them up into two groups, don't they? It's often like, 
sort of males with females, but in the end it becomes mixed groups. And the aim is to try make those teams almost hate each other and they yeah. and they kind of do. Now I know that is a TV reality show. But what I found strange about this one is unlike say football supporters, these boys have got no reason only uh, sorry, no reason to hate or have any hostility towards the other group other than they know they're going to compete against them. And I find it strange that already that's the, the level. Now, the flag on the football field, I kind of get that. That might be a bit of playful mischievousness. You yeah. Know, like, oh, yeah, we've made a flag. But, you know, the ransacking, the burning down of a flag, I'm surprised it got to that level Yeah. in only three or four days. You know? Do you think that the experiment would have been significantly different if they'd have used girls? I... I I wonder. Oh God, let's make a generalisation. I wonder if maybe it would have got as violent. I still think the hostility would be there because I think that's what they were trying. To, they were trying to, you know, as soon as you start making a competition, you start awarding prizes, you start taking away basic basic needs like food. <laughs> yeah, I think that is going to engender. But I I, I do wonder. And you know, you got to look at it this was in the fifties as well. And I think there was a different attitude probably between like what a male, how they should perform in competition as possibly a female should. Yeah. You know, I think we've got to probably not underestimate the prevailing societal feelings. I think. Yeah. I think that, yeah, I, I think that I agree with you. I think that the result would have been the same in terms of the hostility. I just think that it would have manifested in different ways. Like in reality, when we're being honest about it, we know that typically men are just more violent. Like statistically, men commit more violent crime. We are more involved in war. That that is that is just fact. And I think that the hostility level of hostility would have been the same, but I think it would have manifested in different ways. Whereas the boys are actively turning around to try and create physical dominance of another group by like hostile, violent action. I think that if they'd have used girls, it would have been it it would have come about in a different way. I think, but I think that if you'd have used men it probably would have ended up... I think you would have needed a longer experiment time to get there, but I think you could have created the same hostility in proper adult men, I think, if you'd have given them longer. So I think the fact that it's kids also doesn't really kind of change my mind on whether or not it's kind of an accurate representation. So it's interesting you said that, because in my head now, I can't work out which way it would go, so I'm going to ask you it. (laughs) You could come up with the answer. With adults then... You've, I think you just said it. Do you think it would take longer or that animosity would be quicker then? So, you, so the, the conflict phase, do you think would would have taken a bit longer to get to the point where they were probably stealing stuff? And Yeah, I think that it would have been, it would have taken a little bit longer. I mean, again, when you look at like the, the most modern representations of it, when you like look at Big Brother, we always expect like the first two weeks are going to be absolutely sweet before people start hating each other. But again, like how many times have we sat down and been like, oh, he's an Arsenal fan or whatever. You're like, oh, yeah, what a yeah. knob. Do you know what I mean? And you don't mean yeah. it in that way. But secretly, yeah. do you think, oh, you know what? He supports that team. You must be an ass. <laughs> because you associate like a particular team with like a particular behaviour, perhaps. And so I think that ultimately, the if you'd have used adults, they would have got there eventually. I just think that the adults would have been better with rationalising to an extent. So it would have taken more time for them to get to the point at which the boys did because they're yeah. just more mature, basically. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. My other sort of observation of this is that at the end, when they were trying to resolve the conflict, it wasn't enough just to put them in a situation that was happy, like setting off firecrackers or having a bean competition. It's that that anger and that hostility was almost so inbred that they then had to engineer proper tasks to make them work together. So it's not, you know, it goes against the, I'll just shake hands and make up thing that you're, you're almost told that that's, you know, if you've had a fight or you've had an argument at work at home, whatever, you just say, sorry, and shake hands. And that's supposed to be the end of it, isn't it? Yeah. At that age, these kids showed that, no, they had to actually do something to earn that trust almost of each other. Yeah. But again, this links to something you said about The Apprentice. And whilst we're drawing ridiculous conclusions, I think it's because, again, I think that the results would have been similar with adults. Because for me, if you've got a hatred towards a person, you don't actively want to do anything to reconcile with that person unless there is a tangible benefit that comes with it. Because for you, what benefit do you get unless you're helping yourself? 
So it's a bit like with The Apprentice when they do tasks. People have always got really bad relationships with each other on that show. But when it comes to a task, they'll turn around, buckle down, put their differences aside and think, okay, we'll just need to agree to disagree on this. We'll settle on this. We'll do this. It's only afterwards, if it doesn't pay off, that they then switch on each other in the boardroom again. But then they go and win the task. They're all friendly, lovey-dovey back in the house. And so as a result, I think, yeah, it's because you need a tangible benefit that you can feel and or see. Because where do you get... It's a bit like, you know, name someone in your life that you really don't like. I don't know. No, don't name them. Just think about them. <laughs> Everybody listening we'll bleep, to We'll bleep it out. We'll bleep it <laughs> yeah, out. We'll put a beat there. <laughs> um, just think about someone in your head that you actively don't like. If I turned around to you and said, oh, you can go and watch fireworks with this person, you wouldn't see that as an enjoyable experience. And you would you would despise your time with them. But let's say that, I don't know how, where this circumstance would, would occur. Let's say that you were both broken down at the side of a road and you needed to change a tyre to turn around and get where you were going. All of a sudden, the benefit comes that you're willing to put your differences aside with that person in order to get out of where you are. So you would probably end up enjoying that experience because you're like, oh, fuck it, we're working together because we need to need to help each other in order to get out of this situation. I think that, yeah, I, I think that it's 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 an interesting point. Uh, and on a couple of things you said there, one, just go back to the Apprentice one, what I find, and again, it is such a silly thing to, <laughs> to use, but it is fascinating in that sense of human behaviour. I mean, I mean, I still enjoy it. They're starting to pick the most absurd contestants, but... What I find fascinating is, yes, there is an attempt to try work together, but you can see already through it people when they're trying to protect themselves. So they they just want to say anything. And even if it's something stupid, because then what they can say is, well, I offered advice. It wasn't taken. Now, that advice might be, I don't know, to run through the streets of London naked, throwing free stuff out and not actually getting any money. But the fact that they think they've contributed, they think they've done something worthwhile yeah. And so if nobody listens to it, the rest of them are, uh, you know, just irresponsible. And going on to your thing about the person who I hate, who I won't mention, but I've got them in my head. <laughs> I guess the difference is, though, you already hate that person. But what I still find fascinating about this is that these boys are only in groups for four days. And then just introduced. So there was no concept of, oh, it's it's Arsenal v Tottenham or, you know, sort of Argentina, Brazil football. It was... Here's another group of boys. Oh, by the way, we're going to make you pit you against them in competitions for a pocket yeah. knife and uh, and a trophy. And 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 right, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's just showing that at a base level, that is our human instinct. But then as we get older, we learn to kind of control it at work. Because yeah, you, there are people you work with you don't necessarily get on with, or there's people in you might see regularly, sort of as you're going to shops or events. As an adult, you understand that everyone's different personalities are different and you work with that but as those kids they just saw one thing we have to win yeah yeah although i would say in terms of them being thrown together and not knowing each other before you've been on lots of holidays previously where you've gone like as part of groups and that sort of thing haven't you when you've gone on these holidays and met people you just happen to be in the same place at the same time you might only spend a few days with them would you come around away from that situation thinking i'm friends with that person I'd actively do more for that person than just a complete stranger. Well, what I would actually say is in that group, there were people I would call and have called friends and people I would happy if I didn't cross paths with them again (laughs) on a holiday. And I I don't mean that in a mean way. I guess so with that, now you're showing something else interesting, is what if they'd have done this as part of the experiment is if, certain people in the in a group so say you took a group and they were really happy like in a group you're often weighed down or annoyed by a person or persons in the group that aren't wanting to do the same things as you or are distracting you so say um say you as a class when you're at school you all went to um to london for the day and you really enjoying it you and a group of mates are really having fun but the teachers say right we could stay another two hours if you want but everyone has got to vote yes and you get sort of two or three people that vote no and so all of you have to go back you're going to be quite annoyed at them possibly aren't you because you so I think that would have been possibly 
quite a good dynamic to oh god i just want to throw more mean things at those kids in this experiment <laughs> i wonder what would happen if once say the winning group if you'd have nurtured them and made them say yeah you're the champions if they then started doing tasks to make them fall out within each other i wonder what the results of that would have been yeah to see if you could have broken the dynamic down well again using another ridiculous example that we see nowadays love island what do you know? I've not seen that. But... Well, what they do is they put all of these single people who've all got six packs um, in yeah. a house together um, and basically just hope that they shag, I guess, is the objective. However, they bring people in and split groups up and bring groups of people in to basically disturb the dynamics. So obviously they're always looked upon as being outsiders and they're looked upon less favorably by members of the group that have been in the house for a while even though they've got no idea what the intentions of the people coming in is right and so right. when you look at it it's actually an interesting like like parallel between kind of like group dynamics and how outsiders are perceived even when in reality it's like you've got no reason to dislike this person you're only disliking them because they establish they destabilize what is basically the status quo so yeah, I think they could kind of look... When you think about it now, all I'm thinking is that all TV shows that are reality shows on TV now are just fucking psychological experiments. Funny you said that because the thing I was going to say is all my examples we said are quite old. I think the most recent experiment was in 1974. A lot of the big ones are from like the 50s, aren't they? 50s, 60s and 70s. And what I was thinking is... Because a lot of them are seen as unethical now, have we learned enough from these that, to me, I'll be careful how I say it, is social media the social experiment that these things were doing back in the 20s, 30s or 40s? Because social media is manipulating people. It shows you, you know, we, we know there are these algorithms that show specific things at you. We know there are these troll groups. We know you can put yourself into like this echo chamber where you're only surrounded by the people and accounts that are similar to you. So is social media and potentially reality TV, are these the social experiments taking place now in place of these unethical tests? Yeah, when you think about it, I think that if you take a lot of the TV shows out of the context, so let's say that you were to take the context of them being reality TV out and put them into a 1950s experiment. So again, let's use Love Island, for instance. You're basically turning around and putting competing men in with competing women to see who establishes the closest relationships. And then what you're doing is you're trying to break up those relationships by inserting what are like agents to turn around and destroy the established order. You'd look at that as really unethical and really immoral. Whereas now we view it as like a just a reality TV thing. But when you look at the context and purely what that actually is and what it's doing to people, because we've seen examples, you know, of, of lots of issues that have come as a result of a lot of these um, um, reality TV shows like Love Island, for instance, has dealt with a number of suicides that have come not necessarily yeah. directly as a result of the show. However, at a higher rate than the average population comparatively to those who have participated in the show. Um, so there has to be a link there. And yeah, I think I think I probably agree with you. I think that especially with reality TV, it's kind of become what is our modern day unethical psychological experiment. Because when you look at it, even with, um, oh, what's the Australian jungle one? I'm a celebrity. When you think about it, what we're doing is we're starving these people and making them do tasks to earn food in order to basically, if we're being honest, to make them irritable, irrational and attack each other. What was the huge scandal? Do you remember when it was Amir Khan? And was it Ian? Ian Lee, yeah. Who who I like listening to, yeah. Yeah, they ate the strawberries, didn't they? And all of a sudden the group turned on them because they were all hungry. Again, if you were to take that situation out of context and say, what we're going to do is we're going to put 12 people in an environment in which they're underfed, hungry, and make them compete to survive for as long as possible whilst basically being voted out by the group. You'd look at that as a really unethical psychological experiment because you're intentionally underfeeding them you're intentionally putting them under stressful situations it, it's actually really quite bad when you think about it like sorry I, and i'm going to talk about that bit now we are going to digress you know i mentioned a number of times that i listened to an old radio show it is his talk show and he, he talks about that after he was on it a lot and he said basically his idea at that was he thought to himself if he stole those strawberries stole you know inverted commas those strawberries would his friends at home laugh? Would his best friend laugh at it? Would a couple of other friends laugh at it? And would he? does he think, would it make good TV? Yeah. Now, did he think it would have the reaction it had in, in the camp? Because people keep saying, you stole food out of them. It goes, it was like 10 strawberries. <laughs> yeah, know, it's not yeah. like, but again, that is a fascinating 
insight because he was also to pick up on something you said he was he joined the camp if not a week a few days after they'd all bonded so he was a new person into the camp so there was already that element of you know well you're an outsider yeah I was just going to say, when you look at the value, though, of the item, so this is what I mean. This is how we know it's an experiment in the way that we're not viewing it like a psychological experiment. We're just viewing it as entertainment. So outside of that situation, if he was at a party that was put on and all these celebrities just happened to be at the same party and he ate all of the strawberries, no one would have cared because the context of the value of that strawberry would have meant nothing in the real world. But what we've done is the value of that strawberry has become artificially inflated because of the stressful situation that we've put the participants in. So all of a sudden, that minute thing, because of the stress that we've put on them, because of the fact that we put them in physical conditions, which are difficult, means that they value that more. And as a result, has provoked the reaction. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a really... <laughs> and the perception of unfairness, because yeah, that yeah. should be for everyone. Now, yeah, yeah. the thing is, I always watch that and think, so, so if people don't know the show, yeah, they do a challenge and if they, oh, it's a question, isn't it? And if they get it right, they'll get a treat. Like it might be a chocolate biscuit each, or this was a plate of strawberries with some cream. Now, as hungry as I am, would I be really happy with one strawberry and a bit <laughs> yeah. of cream? I mean, it's like, I'd be like, oh, fair play to you. <laughs> no, no. Sorry, I, I just want to go back before I forget it, because I, I know I always forget things. The social media thing being a social experiment. I want to, you know, when I've been thinking about it, I want to link it into things we've discussed in the past. I mean, you know, we've had all these crazies, the ones we talked about, like the planking, the Tide Pod Challenge, um, yeah. all these other bizarre ones that no child should ever be doing. What, what was that one where they were trying to su not suffocate themselves? Oh, like it? the pass-out challenge or something? Like... Yeah, the pass-out challenge. That, you know, that is almost like social media is, is doing a one big social experiment to see what, you know, what stupid lengths people will go to to get onto a craze or a, or, a, or a trend. And the fact that it's all determined by likes, you know, so if you haven't got that many likes, you're not as good an account as that other one. It's, it's bizarre. See, that's the thing as well. When you think about it, it's a, good, it's a good point to raise as well, because nowadays I'll be looking at it in the fact that social media allows the... Like I think it's easy to say that social media has a huge influence on people, but is the influence that social media needs to have on someone to make them do something stupid or dangerous or risky, it is, does, does it need to do less? So, for instance, back then we were putting them physically in, we put those kids physically in groups and put them in situations in which they were promoted to do things that were risky, violent, whatever it might have been. Whereas now, Social media, it's the influence that you just have through seeing something online, the behaviour of the collective, and we're now more exposed to the behaviour of the collective. And especially when you look at trending pages, where all you can see is the same thing, all of a sudden everybody jumps on the trend because it's like the collective behaviour. And so as a result, is it much easier now? You don't need to physically put people in a group on an island, for instance, or in a house like on, on a reality TV show now, you can literally send a tweet from somebody who's relatively big or create a trend amongst a few people that are relatively big and literally have the masses following in on it. Basically, the users are the scientists and the subjects now. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear one of yours now. Oh, my God, I don't know. My mind's going to be bloody long. This is going to be two long episodes because we don't have to get it out. Okay, so I wanted to go with some of the big ones because, I number one, I think that this is probably my favourite one of all time. And this is the Milgram experiment. So the Milgram experiment was basically on obedience to authority figures, and it was basically a series of psychological experiments conducted by Yale University psychologist Stanley Milgram. So it basically measured the willingness of participants, and they were men from the age range of 20 to 50, to obey an authority figure who instructed them to perform basically acts that conflicted with their personal morals. The range of occupants, basically, there wasn't any kind of standard to what they did. They varied from like blue collar workers, uh, white collar workers. It was just a range across the board. Um, now, this experiment actually came about as a result of the trial of Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem. So his study Milgram's study was basically sat to explain the psychology of genocide and basically answer the question could it be that Eichmann and his hundreds of thousands if not millions of accomplices were just following orders and would we be able to call them accomplices based on what they'd done and, and how they were affected by authority 
So in terms of procedure, the main one that Milgram carried out, because there were a number of basically changed parameters that happened after the original experiment. So the experimenter was in charge of the session. The teacher was a volunteer and teachers were led to believe that they were merely assisting when in actual fact they were the subjects of the experiment. And there was a learner and this learner was an actor and he was in with the experiment, but he was pretending to be a volunteer. Both the subject who was taking the role of the teacher and the learner who was the one who was in on the experiment, they arrived at the session together and they were told that they were taking part in an experiment to study memory and learning and to see what the effect of punishment would be on a subject's ability to memorise content. He basically clarified that the payment for the participant in the experiment was secured regardless of its developments. That meant whether it, it took part all the way or stopped, you would still be paid for your participation in the experiment. So they basically were told to draw slips of paper, but it was fixed. So the person who was in on the experiment would always get the role of learner. And the person who was the teacher would always get drawn the teacher and they were again the subject of the experiment. They basically were placed in two separate rooms. So the experimenter who was in the room with the teacher who was the subject of the um, experiment and then you had the learner who was in a separate room entirely. So basically they would be asked a question and that would be a list of like pairs, word pairs to learn and the teacher would test them by naming a word and asking the learner to basically recall its pair from a list of four choices. The teacher is told to administer an electric shock every time the learner makes a mistake and increasing the level of shock each time. So there were basically 30 switches on this machine. Obviously they didn't actually provide an electric shock, it was all set up. Um, marked from 15 volts and on the machine 15 volts it said slight shock there was actually a, a sticker on it that said slight shock then it said 300 volts and it had a sticker on it that said severe shock and then at 450 volts it had like a lightning bolt and it said danger basically on it <laughs> at 450 volts so basically the learner gave wrong answers, pr predominantly wrong answers on purpose because they didn't want him to get them all wrong because obviously you'd think it was probably a little bit untoward. Yeah. And for each of the wrong answer, the teacher gave them an electric shock. When the teacher refused to administer a shock, the experimenter was given a series of basically like orders um, to ensure that they continued. So there was four separate ones. So on the instance of the first refusal, the experimenter who was sat in lab coat would say, please continue. On the second instance of refusal, the, ex the experimenter would say the experiment requires you to continue. Third refusal, it is absolutely essential that you continue. And then the fourth refusal, you have no other choice but to continue. Now, 300 volts would have been, I think, fatal in and of itself. 450 would have basically just been overkill. Now, they did some predictions prior to this study to see how many people they thought would go the full distance. Milgram basically polled 14 Yale University senior psychology majors um, to predict the behaviour of 100 hypothetical teachers. And all of the respondents believe that only a small fraction of teachers would go the whole distance. So the poll responded that only 1% to 3% of people would actually go to 450 volts. He then also asked fellow teachers at Yale... And so basically, again, predictions ranged in, in the kind of same range, only 3.73% of subjects would still continue. And that's what they predicted. Now, this was done with American subjects, and was again, all about the Holocaust, because Milgram wanted to use the American subjects as a test group to see whether or not they were less likely to follow orders. So he believed that the Germans were just more likely to follow those orders. Um, I don't know if you know anything about the statistics on this experiment, but what percentage of people do you think got to a fatal 450 volt shock? So the expectation was one to three percent, was it? Yeah. Bearing in mind as well that when the participants got to 300 volts, the learner stopped responding to questions. So they were asked the question, there was silence, the experimenter would say you must shock them, and then they did. So throughout the experiment, as the volts got stronger and stronger up to 300, the learner was basically like screaming in pain in the other room, they were turning around and objecting. I think at one point, they even turned around and said that they had a heart condition, and you needed to stop. So what percentage do you think got all the way to the end? Let's say then, I'm just going to double it, let's say it was two, say it was four to six percent. 
65% of participants <laughs> continued to the highest level of 450 volts. And also, all participants wow. continued to 300 volts, which was the point at which the person stopped talking. All of them? Yeah, all of them. Uh, went how, many, how many participants did you say again, sorry? So I think there was 40 in the original study. Wow. Which is crazy to think in reality, because like I said, prior to this point, prior to even the 300, they would be turning around and hearing the person that was the learner protest, basically. And then all of a sudden it was silence. So they would receive no response. Yet even in that instance, 26 of the 40 of them ended up going to the final 450 uh, volt shock. Now, it was reported that some subjects were uncomfortable doing so, displaying varying degrees of tension and stress. So the signs that they, they still observed... Did it. Yeah, but they still did it. Signs included sweating, trembling, stuttering, biting their lips, groaning, or digging their fingernails into their skin. Some were even having nar- nervous laughing fits or seizures. 14 of the 40 oh. subjects showed definite signs of nervous laughing or smiling. Um, and every participant paused the experiment at least once. However, most continued after being assured by the experimenter. Some even said that they would refund the money that they were paid for the experiment. Um, that's, it's quite stunning, actually. Yeah. I it's, it's, that's a pun not intended. That's quite a bad choice of words, I think. But I, I think that's actually quite an amazing sort of statistic. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it's it kind of leans into the basis that ordinary people are likely to follow orders given by an authority figure, even to the extent of really, really harming another human being. Um, so I guess it's kind of ingrained in the fact that there were circumstances that promote people to turn around and kind of carry out an act that, that they wouldn't otherwise do. Now, obviously, in terms of ethics and its critical reception, it's a little bit like IMDb, this is, um, it did raise questions about the research ethics. Um, In Milgram's defence, though, 84% of former participants surveyed later said they were glad or very glad to have participated, and 15% chose neutral responses. Um, So this was across all of the um, experiments that were eventually conducted, because like I said, there were many, which we'll get on to. So 92% of all former participants actually responded. Um, and many of them later actually wrote to Milgram thanking him for it. And he got offers of assistance and requests to join his staff from former participants. And a lot of them even thanked him, even given the stress that he was put under, even even the stress that they were put under. Now, there's a couple of points about its applicability to the Holocaust. One of them is the fact that obviously the Holocaust perpetrators were just fully aware that they were hands-on killing victims. Whereas in the experiment, they were never led to believe and they were assured that there would be no permanent or physical damage as a result of their actions in the experiment. So as a result, obviously, you look at it from the perspective of, well, they knew what actively consciously what they were doing, as opposed to these people who just thrown in a lab and told this is what the objective of an experiment is. So it's deceptive in that fact. Obviously, number two is the laboratory subjects didn't know that the vic- didn't know the victims and weren't motivated by racism or any other bias. Whereas, obviously, the Holocaust perpetrators had a sense of discrimination. So, as a result, you can't really apply necessarily the same principles because this was completely somebody who was unknown to you. Although, I think it's dangerous because, in reality, sixty-five percent of people still administer sh- a shock without knowing a person and without the ability to be biased. So imagine if you'd have had a group of people that had been aware of who they were shocking. Would it have yeah. been worse or better because they would have then had the opportunity to be biased based on who they were looking at? Yeah, the sir, people serving the punishment weren't sadists and often exhibited great anguish in the, and conflict in the experiment, unlike the people who basically designed and executed the final solution, who basically had a clear goal that was set to turn around and exterminate millions of people, basically. And the experiment only lasted for an hour. So there wasn't really as much time to contemplate your actions, whereas the Holocaust literally went on for years. So there was obviously natural time for you to assess what actions you were taking. And again, when you were in the experiment, it's not like you were going to bed, having the ability to think about it and then doing the same experiment again the next day. Again, unlike... The thing about the participants in the test, though, is... So it's hard. You can never say, what would you do? Because in my head, I would like to think if I could see myself causing harm to a person, I would stop, you know, once it got to a tolerable level. But did they have a little bit of a safety net in thinking that, well, it's under an experiment condition, so it's going to be all right? Because, you know, in the end, if they were just 
randomly taken and said right you're going to hurt this person they probably wouldn't but if you're saying right this is we're doing this under a scientific setup did they have a little bit of thinking right well would they really let me seriously hurt somebody i i don't know could some people maybe have been eased into doing it because of that yeah yeah potentially i think that's a really good point to be fair i wouldn't want to hurt people but if it's if it's an experiment basis maybe i'm thinking well they've signed up for it they know this is happening and if they're going to let me really severely injure someone well again this is the thing because it links into the point that they were all assured that nothing terrible would happen and there would be no physical harm however then if you started to hear somebody actively protesting to what you were doing telling you that they were in pain and then not hearing them again yeah is that enough it it Evidently, it wasn't enough to turn around and change the minds of the people. So there are a couple of variations to this experiment as well. Um, One thing that should be said is they were actually as well conducted across multiple countries. There was no significant difference between people going all the distance um, between Europeans and Americans. So in America, overall, the average percentage was 61% administered 450 volts. And in Europe, it was 66. So not significant enough to kind of draw conclusions in terms of culture. Um, I, obviously, Milgram didn't expect that any more than his 3%, because again, he didn't carry out the experiment on the German participants because he wanted to prove the point that Germans were just more likely to obey the orders and there was something about them. There was, however, lots of variations to the experiment. So obviously, in Milgram's original, 65% of people went all 450 volts. And then there were a number of variations. So what do you think about the teacher and the learner being in the same room? So as opposed to being behind a wall, the teacher can now see the learner's reaction to the shocks. I would expect it to be less. Okay. Have you got any kind of guest? Guessed, so what? Was, so are we, are we talking about so from the sixty percent that goes all the way? Yeah, from the, that, for, yeah, from the sixty-five percent that goes all the way. What percentage do you think did when the teacher and the learner were in the same room? I think quite substantially. I think it goes down to around twenty-five percent, forty percent. I was going to say forty. Well, okay. Which there I think is still mean pretty people significant. Out there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that, yeah. Now. What about when the teacher had to force the learner's hand onto a shock plate? So now not only are you in the same room, you now also have to put your their hand on a plate, which if you understand anything about electricity, you're still getting electrocuted um, in that situation. But I guess for the purpose of the experiment... What, what they're trying to say is, right, you're administering... Yeah, you are administering the pain. I don't know, I'm thinking if it's still the 40%, I, I think they would still do that. Look, uh, you probably see a bit of a drop. So let's say 30%. You're bang on, 30%. Yeah, because I think this is going to sound bad, but I think you'd be a hypocrite then if you would do it. But then if you had to then be the person do it yourself. to do it. Yeah. You, you're so you hypocrite. can witness it. You're just scared of doing it. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, that's, that's still a lot though. 30% is to me is still Okay. Now, they also conducted one that rather being in the posh Yale University was actually took place in a rundown building. So what do you think the percentage that went all the way was there? So literally just the location has changed. The whole experiment is exactly the same, but they are now in a rundown building as opposed to Yale University. If I've seen enough action for I actually think this would raise it. So I think, yeah, I think this would raise it. No, actually, I, I don't know. It could go one, <laughs> well, obviously it could go one of two ways. I think it, I think it's going to raise. I'm going to say I'm going to say 75% would go all the way. Ah, see now it's interesting because it's actually 48%. So oh, what they found is that it basically delegitimized. Um, it was oh, so just again, what I said that was what yeah. I said as well, wasn't it? Of the, uh, wondered, of the participants to trust it. Yeah, I, yeah. I just wondered if. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now I get it. I get it. But yeah. I understand what Sorry. you mean because I feel like you would have looked at it from the perspective of. Okay, then we'll do we'll do two last ones, because then my last one links into another point. What about someone else administering the shock? So it's it's not you. So you're in the room. You're, someone you're, else... you're asking the questions, but someone else is giving the shock. What percentage of people do you think ended up taking the experiment all the way? I, OK, I think that will be higher because, again, the guilt isn't on you and you are just doing your bit. So, okay, I'm going to say 75 for that one. 92.5%. Wow. 
Now, yeah, I guess me- guilt is absolved on them then because all they're doing is just asking a question then isn't it yeah so for them there's no physicality to it there's no real moral problem because you're not pushing the button and to me i think that if you were to draw a link between what milgram was intentionally trying to identify which was about the holocaust in reality that provides more of an understanding about the people who were in the middle that gave the orders as to why they gave the orders because it's easy to give the order when it comes from above you and you don't need to get your hands dirty and you're just the middleman that's turning around and making it happen. This was all based on whether or not something was seen as being a legitimate authority. So in all of the experiments, the person was dressed in a lab coat. Now, there was one variable in which the experimenter was replaced with another participant in just ordinary clothes. So one last guess, what do you think the percentage of shocks was administered at 450 volts when the only thing that changed was the experimenter being in normal clothes? Who the person who gives the prods and says you must continue, you must carry oh, on. In normal clothes, I think yeah. reduces. I think reduces. It's probably be the lowest one, so I reckon that's going to be around the twenty mark. It is exactly twenty percent. Yeah, um, because again, it legitimizes it if they're in a lab coat. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. I think that's probably as well. If if that's the original intention of the experiment, that's one of the parameters I think that gives a little bit more of an understanding towards they were what they were originally trying to go for, and also kind of harkens back to your point of how far is a regular person willing to go because you're looking at somebody else in normal clothes as your equal, and so as a result, are you willing to carry out an order by someone who you carry as your equal, or are you more willing to challenge them? And again, just this is a tiny experiment that links because I know that we're running along as well. Yeah, I think we'll cut <laughs> after this. We'll we're going to cut it here. Yeah, we're going to have to cut it here. Um, and so this was an experiment by Bickman in 1974. Um, so basically, this was to experiment to understand the power of the uniform in a field experiment. So it was conducted in New York and he used three male actors. One was dressed as a milkman, one was dressed as a security guard and one was dressed in ordinary clothes. The actors asked members of the public one of the following three instructions. So this was to pick up a bag, give someone money for a parking meter and stand on the other side of a bus stop with a sign that said no standing. On average, the guard was obeyed on 76% of occasions, the milkman on 47% and the pedestrian on 30%. And again, all the results suggested that people are more likely to obey when instructed by someone wearing a uniform, all because the uniform infers some sort of legitimate authority and power. So I think that in reality, outside of a war situation, do I think that when you look at atrocities like the Holocaust, they're almost kind of exacerbated by the fact that You've had military where the established order is following orders as well, not to mention the fact that that regular people in the street are also more likely to follow orders from people in uniform. It's like the perfect storm to create the most horrific people in a situation. I also think that, I mean, it is bad if I was to administer an electric shot to someone. It's almost like an invisible thing, if you know what I mean. Like if you were then to say, right, if, if they get it wrong, you have to wrap them over the hand with a cane. Yeah. Or watch somebody do that. I don't I wonder if that would be lower because it's almost like an electric shot. Well, you can't see it. You can obviously see the person react to it. It's not a physical act, if you see what I mean. They're not witnessing a physical act. Yeah, it's not like having to violence. Like, yeah, like put a knife in someone basically, because there's a level of physicality that comes with you having to inflict the pain, basically. Yeah. Before I think we should wrap it up, I was hoping we'd have got through three three tests it, but <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, how do you think, and again, it's, it, uh, you know, hypocrite because I said you can't do that, but how do you think you would react? Would you go all the way to 450? Um, there's a part of me that probably says they want to be good and says that they would object. I think that I would probably have one objection. However, I would probably have participated all the way. And I think that that's just me trying to be as base level honest with myself as I can possibly be. Because I think that given the right circumstances, and this will link to something that we're going to tease in our second episode with psychological experiments, and a famous psychologist, if you'll understand this quote, I think that it's bad situations that make people bad as opposed to just inherently bad people. I think that there are people that are bad in the world, but I think for the most part, it's bad situations that make you do bad things. So I think if I was being honest with myself, I probably would have thought to myself once, but once reassured at that point, what other objections can you have? You can't really have any once you've been assured by someone that you trust. And that would have yeah. been the set of the experiment. So I think, yeah, I, I probably would have ended being 
being whether you say coerced or willingly, <laughs> probably going to four fifty. What do you think? Yeah, like, like I said, I'd like to think I wouldn't. I'd like to think I wouldn't, but I would wonder. I'm going back to my earlier point. I would wonder if it was under a in a university under experimental conditions. Would I think what I'm doing is safe? Yeah. And how yeah. dangerous could it really be? I think we might have to wrap this episode up here. I think. Yeah, we might have to. Although I do want to say, statistically, sixty-five percent. If there's two of us, it means that one of us would and one of us wouldn't. So I think that in reality, I'm much more likely to be going to four fifty than you are. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think we even have to ask our listeners. <laughs> I'm getting to the end of the experiment, being like, does it not go up any further? <laughs> okay, I think what we'll do is we'll wrap up part one of psychological experiments here. Um, do tune in for part two whenever that decides to be released because we know that we're going to need to part two to this now because we've got so much more to talk about it'll be next week it'll be next week (laughs) yeah it'll be next week so do tune into that if you have ever participated in a psychological experiment because they do still run them they're just much more ethical it's probably interesting to know what is kind of happening now inside universities again it does strike me that all of the big huge unis are the ones that do these experiments um but yeah if you have enjoyed this episode do pop us a review you can pop us a follow and a message on twitter at casting views or of course an email at castingviewspod at gmail.com um we'll see you for part two and i will still leave you with we know there are many podcasts from which you can choose but we thank you for listening to Cast in Views. If I want your opinion, I will give it to you. Come on, check what we've got, cause you need it. Don't make us get a spark and force feed it. Come on, we